Our sermon passage today is Matthew 13, verse 30 through 30, 53 through 14, 12. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came... The daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus." This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would teach, that you would mold and shape, that you would give faith and obedience through your word and to you. Lord, as I teach these passages today, I pray that you would help me. I pray that you would help us. Please be at work, O God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. If you haven't done so already, please take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew chapter 13, where Sarah was just reading for us. Um, As we begin, we're studying the book of Matthew. And what we see in the book of Matthew is the story of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what Jesus taught, And it moves us and calls us to trust in him and to follow him. And so in our study through um, the the gospel of Matthew, we begin a new section today here in chapter 13, verses 53. And it's going to carry through chapter 16. And here's the section. Who is Jesus? The section is how do we respond to this Jesus? And we're going to spend the next several weeks seeing how this passage, these passages move us to wrestle with that question. However, I don't want to ask you to wait four or five weeks to get to the right answer. So let me just go ahead and give it to you. The question of the chapters is, who is this Jesus and how do we respond to him? And the answer is found in chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. This is where we're moving. Chapter 15 verses, excuse me, chapter 16, verses 15 through 16. Jesus said to his disciples, "But who do you say that I am?" 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That's where we're moving. So if you're visiting today, if you're exploring Christianity today, if you're wondering what it might be, mean to be a follower of Jesus, if you're just here strongly broken and hurting and convicted and are like, I need a word, let me just say this. Don't be like the Nazarenes that we're about to look at. Don't be like Herod that we are about to look at. Be like the disciples and Peter who see and are led by the Spirit of God to believe, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. I trust in you. The answer is Christ. The answer is what Christ has done. The answer is that Jesus redeems sinners and makes all things new. This is the answer. Consider him. But as we move toward that answer, today we start with wrong answers only. We start with wrong answers only. And so we're going to start with two bad examples of the question, how do I respond to the teaching and works of Jesus? How do I respond to the teaching and works of Jesus? And so we're going to start with two poor examples. Uh, so if you want to take notes this morning, the first point is one of us. One of us. This is uh, chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. Uh, chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. And Jesus goes home to his hometown. He's been out doing ministry all around. He goes home to his hometown. And at the end of it, his people in his town are going to choose a fence over belief. They're going to choose a fence over belief. And it looks like the primary reason for this offense is they can't reconcile how one of us could do the things that Jesus does. So in some way, their response to Jesus is, yeah, I see what he's doing, but he's just one of us. And so we'll be offended at him. Now, most visceral responses to Christ aren't that logical, but that's what plays out. So we're told in the passage that Jesus has returned to his hometown. We're told that when he gets there, he teaches in the synagogue, and they were, quote, astonished, end quote, at his teaching. They heard of his mighty works, and they too were astonished. So it leads them to the question. And the question is in verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They're effectively asking our question, who is this man? 
Wisdom, where did he get his knowledge of the scripture and understanding of what it means? Where did he get these mighty works? Friends, this is the right question. Any of you who are navigating any part of the gospel of Matthew with us, this is the right question. Who is he? And then they are going to model a very poor answer to the question. They say, he's the carpenter's son. Can I just give a little aside? I am astounded, or dare I say astonished, to be in keeping with the Nazarenes. How many Bible scholars wasted multiple pages in a commentary to debate whether carpenter meant woodworker or rock worker? I'm not joking. Who cares? He had a father who was a man who did things with his hands that don't explain his wisdom or his power. Okay? Like, there we go. I just feel like occasionally I need to shoot arrows at Christian academia because all of you guys think if you went to seminary and had a PhD, you would follow Jesus better. And that's probably not true. Just read your Bible, trust the Spirit, walk with Him. And the dude with a PhD just said amen. I see another one of y'all back there. Can I get an amen from you? Thank you. There we go. If any of the rest of you have a PhD in theology, I don't know it. Can you say amen? So the question, where did he get this wisdom and power? And they say, well, honestly, isn't he just one of us? He's the carpenter's son. His mother's Mary. She's over yonder. His brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Sisters are with us. They ask the question again, where then did he get all these things? So, the right question, where did he get all these things? Admitted conundrum. Feels like he's just one of us. So we're back to the question. Where did he get all these things? And then verse 57, and they took offense at him. So in the face of this honest and rightful question, rather than moving toward faith and trust, those in Jesus's town move toward offense and rejection. They move toward offense and rejection. So here's one way that we could do this this morning. They rejected him. That was foolish. I'm glad we're not them. There's a lot of truth in that. They rejected him. That is foolish. And I truly, with all of my mind and heart and body and soul, hope that you don't reject him like they did. Jesus responded by saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his own household. Which shows us that he's not astounded by this. It was kind of a proverb of the day, so it shows us that even other leaders would not be astounded by this. But I think we have to go a little deeper and we have to ask this question. Why did they go down the path of offense and rejection? The passage doesn't clearly tell us, but I think it's somewhat evident. 
I'm here to contend that making Jesus too much like us undermines belief, worship, and faith. Making Jesus too much like us undermines belief, worship, and faith. So we could do this academically. We could talk modernism. We could talk early 20th century. We could talk about evacuating the miracles from the Bible. We could talk about, at the end of the day, there was a whole intellectual movement to make Jesus just a man which then fits my paradigm of when we make him too much like us, it, rather than pushing us to faith, pushing us to dependence, pushing us to awe, pushing us to worship, it undermines those things. But there's a less intellectual version of this. I believe we're all prone to try to bring the Lord down to our level so that he feels accessible to us. But when we do that, we're actually undermining belief and worship and faith. Yes, Jesus became a man. Yes, Jesus was fully man. Yes, Jesus experienced temptation in every way that we do, yet without sin. But he always was the Lord. He always was without sin. He always was God himself with us. There always was fundamental difference in Jesus. And I believe it's those differences, the the what he truly is that is unlike us, that actually pushes us toward worship, toward faith, toward belief, and toward obedience. And those of you who are well-read in theology, I am not trying to undermine the, the doctrine of incarnation. But incarnation doesn't mean that Jesus is just like us to deify what we love and long for. What it means is he came to change us to be like him. Now, I'm going to say one more thing on this point, and I'm going to kind of leave it there for you to ponder. I just want to say that up front, because last week I um, tiptoed into something, and then I ran out of it. And after the service, every one of you came speaking running to me, talk about that pond that you were trying to get out of. So I'm, I'm going to go there, okay? But here's the principle. Making Jesus too much like us actually undermines belief, worship, and faith. There's a massive problem in our society right now called political theology. And there's a left version of it, and there's a right version of it. And both of them are committing this mistake. We're taking the words and the teaching of Jesus and making them to be what we want, and we're calling it God's way. And when we do that, 
to the left or to the right. The, the, the funny thing is if you took the left's snipped up political Jesus and the right's snipped up political Jesus and you put them together, in some ways you might get closer to the, the, the real Jesus. But like I said, I'm just going to tiptoe into that and tiptoe back out. But, but the point is, the point is not to get political. And it's not to throw stones at the left or the right. I think the point is to recognize a tendency in the human heart to make God in our image. And when we do that, it undermines the very things that he came to bring in. Worship, faith, obedience, dependence, and following. Redeemer doesn't do political theology. We don't have stances on those things, but that's the very prevalent all around me thing that I see. Here's another one for Super Bowl Sunday. How about that? Athletes love to make Jesus in the image of their team. Whoever wins tonight, it is because God is for them. And Philippians 4.13 is true. They can do all things like win the Super Bowl through God who gives them strength. God loves losers too. <laughs> what Super Bowl are we on? 57? I quit counting at 50. It's a big number. And when God purposed the ends of his world, the winner of Super Bowl 57 was not at the apex of his decision making. Making Jesus too much like us undermines belief, worship, and faith. We got to look at this last verse though. And man, okay. Verse 58. This is still under one of us. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What this means isn't hard to understand. Their unbelief, their rejection, their obstinance, their offense at him. The response was Jesus did not do many mighty works there. Which pushes us to this truth. Jesus wasn't a genie walking through Galilee dispensing miracles like Oprah does free things. And you get healed, and you get healed, and you get a new spouse, and you get some new kids, and you get healed. That's not how it worked. He chose when and how to exercise his power for his purposes of building his kingdom. And so in this moment, it says Jesus chose for a time not to exercise his mighty power in this particular place. And then it reminds us, I believe, because of their unbelief, that the purpose of the miracles was not to force people to believe, but the purpose of the miracles was to reinforce the faith of those who believe. Does that distinction make, make a difference? The purpose of the miracles wasn't to force you to believe, but the purpose was to reinforce the faith of those who did believe. Meaning, this guy who says he can take away my sins, he's trustworthy because look at all the things that he's doing. So the first bad response to the question, who is Jesus, is he's just one of us. And the Nazarenes are the first documented people to respond that way, but this has been playing out for the last 2,000 plus years. The second bad response, and this is our second point, is misplaced fear. Misplaced fear. 
This is verses 14, 1 through 12. We get this story about Herod, the Tetrarch. Just know, as you read through the Gospels, there are multiple Herods. All of them belonged to Rome, and all of them did bad things to God's prophets and people. Like, there you go. Make it simple for you. This is one of the Herods. And his response was a tormented one. Who is Jesus? He's John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. Now, that feels out of left field, doesn't it? He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Well, yes and no. It certainly is out of left field, but at the end of the day, what this shows us is that Herod knew the works of John the Baptist. Herod knew the teachings and the the mighty works that were done through John the Baptist. And Herod sinned mightily by killing John the Baptist for silly reasons. And Herod is being taunted by his past sins and his past decisions. And so when he says, this is John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. What Herod is ultimately saying is, John's come back to right the wrongs that I've perpetuated against him. Now, Herod's right. He perpetuated wrongs against John. Herod's wrong that John was raised from the dead. And Herod's wrong that Jesus is John raised from the dead. So if you've never been tormented so deeply by sin that you would misrepresent and misinterpret who God is, then maybe you're not Herod. And we can just write him off like we did those Nazarenes. But there's this fascinating story that Matthew chose to include. And I don't think it was just to give an update on John. Because we haven't heard from him in a while. But rather, I think it was to show us how John... Excuse me, how Herod and his sinfulness exercised against John is now coming back to haunt him. And this becomes our connection to the text. Not that God is vengefully haunting us by our past mistakes, but that our sins, our rebellions, our evil things that we perpetuate, they affect how we respond to Jesus. All those things affect how we respond to Jesus. So let's look at how it affected Herod. This is a bit of a salacious story, and I will keep it rated G for the sake of the audience. But it went like this. Herod liked his brother's wife. So he took her. John said... In the name of the Lord, you shouldn't do that. And that made the wife angry. Then, Herod, Herod's wife threw a birthday party for Herod. And she sent her 
12 to 13 middle schoolish age daughter out to dance for her husband who was also, well, for the daughter to go dance for her stepfather who was also her uncle. And she danced for him in such a way that she evoked his interest in her. And so now Herod is so pleased wrongly with his stepdaughter slash niece that he promises he'll do anything she asks. And so her mother, still offended about the whole you shouldn't be married thing, asks for Herod to deliver the head of John on a platter. Not metaphorically, but quite literally. This is where we get our metaphor. And so Herod, valuing a combination of his status as leader and moved by his desires, Herod has John beheaded, has his head put on a platter, and delivered to said middle school dancing gal so that she could then bring it to her mother. This sounds like a really horrible episode of a really bad sitcom. That wouldn't even be aired on broadcast television. So why is Herod? Why is Herod looking at the teaching and works of Jesus and saying, this must be John raised from the dead? It seems that the story tells us that Herod knew John was doing inexplicable works empowered by God. It seems that the story tells us that Herod was very wrong in his killing of John. And it seems to tell us that Herod is being haunted by this reality. Now, what's the answer? To be afraid of resurrected John? No, the answer is to run to Jesus and to profess he is the Christ, the son of the living God, but that's not the path that Herod is on. So I simply want to say this to us. I don't think that that God is vindictively trying to heap our past mess on our heads, but we do see God using the past transgressions of Herod to push him to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? Can we at least make that connection? Friends, I think God does work in that way. If we came up here and had open mic for the next five hours and said, tell how you came to Christ, 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 a theme that would run through that would be past sins, past mistakes, past transgressions, beginning to bring deep hurt and work and pain in us and then us being shown that Jesus is the solution. All that's missing here is Herod doesn't seem to see that Jesus is the answer. But to put a good King James word on it, I think Herod is under conviction. So, often... 
our wrong responses to Jesus are shaped by our wrong responses to sin, guilt, shame, and fear. By our wrong responses to how we navigate the things we have done. And the answer is for those things to drive us to Jesus. Now, there's one more point I think we have to make from this passage. If this passage shows us anything, it shows us just how deceptive sin is. And it shows us how being blinded by sin can then cause us to be blinded by more sin, which then causes us to be blinded by more sin, which then causes us to deliver a dude's head on a platter to our stepdaughter slash niece. And so when I think about sin and rebellion, and I look at people that to me feel way out there, and I'm like, I don't know how you ever get way out there. Very rarely is it one plunge off a diving board. But rather way out there is sin, unconfessed, covered up, which leads to another sin, unconfessed, covered up. And before we know it, our sin and rebellion is remaking who we are. I think we see that play out here, right? Desire, I want my brother's wife. Prophet, you shouldn't do that. Response, you go to jail. Desire, I like my brother's wife's daughter, who is now my wife's daughter. Response, I'll give you whatever you want. Commit murder. Well, I don't want to be found a liar in public, so I commit murder. I, I, I'm, just simply, I'm, not, I'm just simply pointing out that sin deceives. Sin blinds. Sin confuses. And what we see in this Herod story is how these things move forward in our lives. So if anything is true about the gospel, then the way we respond to the sin is we confess it. We own it. We let Light shine into the darkness so that light of Jesus overcomes the darkness. Because in darkness and deceit, all kinds of evil things unfold. One thing that I do as a pastor is I spend a lot of time I've never had anybody come in and confess that they beheaded a man and put his head on a platter. That was a little bit funny. But I spent a lot of time with people in those moments like the head on the platter where they're like, I have no idea how I got here. Um, And that's not a moment for 
guilt and shame and tisk tisk and connect. Like that's not a moment for that. It's just a moment to say, repent, run to Jesus, be healed, be transformed. But when I get out of those meetings, I usually spend a few minutes going, how did they get there? And what can I learn about how they got there so that by God's grace, I don't get there? I think I'm kind of saying... The main point of this whole Herod thing is he was wrong about who Jesus is, but I think there's a secondary thing in here. Like, let's learn about how sin deceives and pulls us down and muddies the water, and we end up being who we thought we never would be. And it's all because of the deceptiveness. And the way forward is light. The way forward is Jesus. The way forward is confession. The way forward is walking in God's ways. So let's end where we began. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Our prayer today is that we would all either move toward that confession or cling to that confession. And wherever we see these other tendencies of Christ is just one of us or misplaced fear about what Jesus might be doing to us, I pray that the Lord would stir us. You are God's Savior, His Son. In you, I trust. In you, we trust.